0: The following talk was given by Danica Shōan ankele at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shōan is a senior monastic and serves as the training coordinator and creative director for the Mountains and Rivers Order. She is also a textile artist and oversees the Tenko's online of handmade items designed and crafted for the monastery store. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wanted to um, talk about bodhisattva since we've been spending this ongo studying bodhisattva. And as I was um, kind of drawing myself together and reflecting on what I might say, I found myself feeling so anxious and I thought, you know what? It's scary. Being a bodhisattva is scary. And as I've been um, listening to the teachings this ango, So much of the time, I feel like I can't do that. To renounce comfort and familiar ways and delicious desires. To actually turn toward and take on others' toxic energy. To cultivate unconditional love for beings that I consider reprehensible. So intense. You know, before the Ango started, when um, Roshi said that he was going to choose Togme Zangpo's teachings on the 37 verses, I um, looked at them. I have Dilgul Kiense's commentary, and so I went to see, what what is this again? And this was during the summer, during the late part of the summer, when the um, George Floyd police brutality protests were still really rolling, and when the forest fires out west were just raging, and we even had hints of smoke here in the Catskills. And I read through the teachings, and I actually went to GoCon. I was like, have you read this? I was like, what, what, what are people supposed to do with this? I was like, this is like not... like." I I was a little freaked out. And he was like, you know, that's the Buddha's teaching. He was like, you you can't... I was like, well, Shugan, maybe he's like, you can't edit the Buddha's teaching. (laughs) So I thought it was a very bold choice. Deliberately so, I'm quite sure. So some of the qualities I would like to touch on that I think are totally alluded to in the 37 practices, but um, as more of a distant over-the-shoulder memory than a present experience um, for that venerable teacher, um, are messiness and vulnerability and tenderness and wisdom. So first, just to say, like, it is a very brutal world. When we look at a teaching like this and feel like, whoa, that is intense, yeah, it's matching the intensity of the world that we live in. I mean, that is always true, and then this year, 2020, rough, rough. And who knows where it's going? Who knows where it's going? And so, you know, is it any wonder that we find ourselves in this world and want out? And so, this is kind of the first thing that I think is good to take in about the Bodhisattva path. We're not going anywhere. This is it. This is it. This is explicitly part of the teaching in a sense. You know that the bodhisattva is the one that stays behind to liberate all the suffering beings. The bodhisattva is a citizen of samsara. And yet, and yet, Here's the pivot. Nagarjuna himself said, samsara and nirvana are the same thing. And he meant it. That was not like a provisional statement that expires with our present circumstances. So the bodhisattva is a citizen of samsara, but they have a very particular relationship to it. The bodhisattva understands what's actually happening. And I would guess that the clearer and maybe the more vulnerable a bodhisattva is and is willing to be, the more powerful they can be. So we start with really taking that in. And Tokme Zongpo's teachings make it pretty clear that this world is complicated. It's full of abuse and hatred and karmic complexity, the afflictive emotions. How are we going to travel from this realm? How are we going to travel without taking a single step? Well, I think for a lot of us, and for me, for many, many years, the inclination is to see zazen as a way of getting out. Maybe in just a subtle way that we're not super conscious of. You know, we hear teachings on samadhi, on Buddha mind, on the absolute nature of reality, and we think, sweet, <laughs> <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> and so we can take our seat and actually be oriented toward another time or place, toward creating an experience, toward getting out trying to disappear or make the world disappear. But actually practice is just to sit here. It's actually about being totally here. Not in like a be here but not actually be here way. No, in a like actually be totally here without any distractions. It's a common misconception, I think, and and there's um uh, a history there which is worth mentioning. I mean, first there's the um, original teachings of the Buddha and Theravada Buddhism, and the sort of the model of the Arhat who liberates their own mind and kind of like um, completes the deal. Um, and then, you know, the Mahayana view with the bodhisattva sort of returning, that's, that, that comes a bit down the line. Um, you know, there's teachings on the dreamlike nature of reality, so we can think like, okay, I guess this is a dream, I guess. It's kind of like a long, complicated dream, but okay, maybe that's the solution. I will wake up, and I won't be here anymore. I don't know, how's that going to work? There's language that we use also that can lead to this. Like we talk about, you know, to sever all thoughts or, you know, cut things off at the root. And um, so deep in me is this particular sort of, um, I don't know, persistent feeling that that is what I'm um, going for, Um, that I was really struck when over just a couple weekends ago, whenever it was during the Ongo intensive, you may remember this moment. I'm not actually sure what Roshi was addressing, but he, he said, we are not striving for a state of absorption. That is not the point. And I wrote that down. Judy Leaf in her um, workshop on Milarepa told the story of um, Saraha. And uh, I, I looked it up and I found a, a retelling of it by um, Lama Sultran Alioni um, in her book, Wisdom Rising. And um, it's, it's like, right, right about this. So Saraha is one of the Mahasiddhas of India, same sort of, um, you know, the, the great yogis, the great practitioners, and um, a and Buddhist, Buddhist practitioner. And he, um, he is living with this uh, Dakini consort, his partner, and um, uh, arguably his teacher. And um, there's, there's a certain evening that he asks if, if she would make some radish curry, and she agrees, and he says, okay, well, I'm going to go meditate before dinner while you, while you make the radish curry. And he goes in to meditate in another room, and he enters like a very, very deep state of meditation, and he stays in samadhi for 12 years. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, the, the dakini, the woman, keeps coming in to like check on him, And he's like still in samadhi, and so she just like leaves him alone. So the radish curry has long come and gone when he finally comes out of samadhi. But the first thing that he says when he comes out is, where's the radish curry? And she's like, it's not even the season for radishes anymore. And she's like, if this is the result of your years of meditation practice, 12 years... If this is the result of your years of meditation practice and you sit in samadhi for 12 years without getting up and now you want radish curry as if it still existed, there's no radishes at this time of year and you're no better than a marmot coming out of hibernation who wants some food. (laughs) So he's like a little chastened and irritated and he's like, okay, well, I'm just going to go up into the mountains and meditate then. And she says simply removing your body from the world is not true renunciation. Real renunciation takes place when your mind abandons frivolous and absorbing thoughts. If you sit in meditation for 12 years and cannot even give up your desire for radish curry, what is the point of going into the mountains? Good on him, he bows to her and continues studying, and she teaches him about realization in the context of everyday life. But these words that we use, you know, when we talk about like severing thought and cutting things off at the root, or when we talk about Manjushri wielding their sword, um, it is pointing to something. And so it becomes like we need to, you know, discover what, what does that mean? What does that mean? Tilopa, um, Dilgo Kense quotes this in in his commentary. Tilopa says, um, addressing Naropa, it's not what you perceive that binds you. It is your clinging to it that binds you. Cut through your clinging, Naropa. What does it mean to cut through our clinging? As soon as we take that up as an aggressive act, we're back in the realm of samsara, in a sense. We're rejecting what's actually here. It's, it's a form of clinging. To cut off clinging in an aggressive way is another form of grasping. The mind is still not at ease. So how then, in the swirl of thoughts, How do we work with that? Well, there's the need for calming the mind. So there's the need for developing concentration. But we're not developing concentration so that we can, like, check out or go blank or be, like, done. We're developing concentration so that we can see into our mind Shamatha, stability of mind, calming the mind. When our mind is just going, 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 it's dizzying, it's nauseating sometimes, and we're just in the thrall of it. But if we can begin to calm the mind down, then we can begin to see. So our mind has this capacity to see insight, vipassana. And sometimes shamatha and vipassana are taught as a distinct, not distinct, but kind of um, a particular um, practices of meditation. In zazen, we kind of do both. But we can't really take up a practice of insight until we have a practice of um, some calm abiding, which is why we start with working with the breath. But even when you're working with the breath, you may have a questioning heart under that. So, rather than cutting off In terms of rejecting, we can not feed, not add, we can refrain. It's the constant adding and the constant activity that keeps the cycle going. So if we refrain, things quiet down. Recently, I was sharing with folks. I watched a teaching by Sokni Rinpoche, and he used a, he did like a guided meditation, and he, um, he used the word allow. To just allow. As thoughts are arising, as you're having your feelings, just allow. Don't try and cut off. Don't chase after, just allow. Suzuki Roshi talks about in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, about having, um, if, you, if you give your cows a very spacious field, they'll just chill. As soon as you pen them in, right, as soon as we're like on our mind, like, uh, thought, thought, uh, uh, just allow a little more room, a little more space. And again, something that I've um, offered before, but I find it so helpful still, um, is this uh, phrase from the teacher Anand Thubten, who says, um, Buddhist practice is devotional surrender to reality. I find that very helpful, to just be with what is, and in my own practice again i have i have felt like oh is there a tension between like concentrating the mind should i be concentrating the mind or should i be like relaxing the mind having sort of an open spacious mind one feels like Whoosh, and the other feels like and i've like sort of oriented myself in ways where i felt like okay this is, I'm, I'm working on my concentration practice, or now I'm just like resting at ease. And um, I was asking Roshi about this not so long ago. And he was like, you know, look at how they're different. Are they different? And so I really took that in and went to look to see okay, what am I talking about What that I've set apart, you know? And I had to see that, uh, I had to say that they're not, they're not different. To concentrate in a relaxed way or to relax in a concentrated way, this mind of non-distraction, the mind is at ease, Right? The mind is at ease. It's not perpetuating. So this um, relaxed, open, non-distracted, concentrated mind. I was talking to a friend just the other day, um, kind of asking her advice about working, working out a problem. And I said, yeah, you know, if I can just get clear. And she said, stop. Stop. Don't worry about being clear. Just let yourself be vulnerable. It stopped me in that conversation as I took that in. What does it mean to be vulnerable? And in our practice on this path, what does it mean to be vulnerable? In a sense, when Sogni Rinpoche says allow, that's a very vulnerable state, to allow whatever's arising. You don't have to fix it. There's nothing wrong. Whatever's arising, to allow it that can take so much courage, fearlessness, depth of heart, and we begin to see like that defensive, reactive, oppositional sort of activity of our mind. What is it that we're trying to protect? When we loosen that, what kind of experience becomes possible? Seeing into that, what do we notice about this human experience? It is so connected. We are so connected all the time. You smile. I have one feeling arise. You shoot me a dirty look. My whole universe just changed. Everything is affecting us all the time. In a sense, like, that's what life is, right? And we don't understand what's happening. It's like when Roshi spoke yesterday about, like, a feeling arises. I'm sad. (laughs) Like, Like, what? What? What is going on? I think you said, "What the hell is going on?" Yeah, the smallest tilt, right? I love that um, uh, he raised the question, like, "Why am I sad?" I so relate to that, like being in a mood and being like, "How did I get here?" <laughs> You know, this reminds me, uh, a a number of years ago, um, I was in an art studio workshop that met weekly, and I I made a friend there who, um, it turned out in our conversations, she was studying magic. And she was, like, very, very serious about her study of magic. And we had a few conversations, enough for me to know, like, okay, I, I don't know what this magic is that she's studying. One thing that she said is she was like, yeah, there's this thing that's really, really hard that I'm working on. I was like, what is it? And she was like, I have to be able to sit completely still and hold a glass, on my he- a glass of water on my head for half an hour. And I was like, no problem. <laughs> So we had some conversations about it, and she was always a little bit guarded as to what she was actually like, doing, like what it was. She had like a magic room, like a Zendo, set up in her, in her house. And one, one time we were hanging out, and I was like, so like, you know, do, do some magic on me. <laughs> and she was like, what do you want me to do? And I was like, I don't know, like do something that's going like, to make me feel good. And she said you want me to compliment you? <laughs> I said, what? She said, you look really beautiful. I was thinking about when um, in the Ongo Intensive, the other day we sort of, Gokan used this metaphor of like the, the rock inside as a, as a way of kind of talking about that, that sense that we have of like ourself, you know, and so like this, this being affected by everything, right? This like ordinary magic, like we're so vulnerable, right? Do you get that? Like I can say something or look at you a certain way and you have a response, your world turns. Like that's just from a glance maybe. If I'm, like, screaming epithets at you, like, what is that? Right? We're so vulnerable. And then we, we think that this vulnerability means that there's something to protect. So we're confused in this very basic way. So the Dalai Lama had a, uh, something helpful to say about this. <laughs> This is um, addressing this confusion that we have. We think that we, ha- we have an experience, and then we think that we have something to protect. The experience is real, but our understanding of it is not true. Right? We're actually having an experience that's real, but we've misunderstood the, the, the deeper source we think that I have a self I need to protect. So the bodhisattva, part of like, you know, why is this like, why are the wisdom teachings so integral, like basically what the whole thing is about? Because that's what's transformative of our experience. To dissolve that rock, we have to see its actual nature. So, the Dalai Lama has this kind of helpful, I thought, um, uh, summation of like, why is it that we need to understand that there are two truths? We speak about the relative and the absolute, right? And so, earlier when I was talking about like, get me out of here, I'm just gonna like jettison, like, I always heard like, Teachings on the absolute, like that, is where we're headed for. That uh, get me a ticket. I'm on my way. And um, I remember actually that line in Identity of Relative and Absolute, where it says, "To encounter the absolute is not yet enlightenment." I was like, um, "No, I'm pretty sure it is." <laughs> so, um, so, so there are two truths, which means the relative world is just as true. It's just as true. You can't take one and not the other. That's like the kicker. This is from a book called um, Transcendent Wisdom, which is the Dalai Lama's commentary on the chapter of Shantideva's Way of Bodhisattva that deals with the wisdom, uh, Prajnaparamita. So he writes, we need to understand the essential nature of the broad diversity of phenomena. In other words, emptiness. Um, For example, if we are obliged to be involved frequently with a man who exhibits a personality that is true only on the surface, as well as another basic personality, it is important for us to know both of them. To engage in a relationship with this person that does not go awry we must know both aspects of his personality. To know only the facade that he presents is insufficient. We need to know his basic disposition and abilities. Then we can know what to expect from him, and he will not deceive us. Likewise, the manifold events in the world are not non-existent. They do exist. They are able to help and hurt us no further criterion for existence is necessary. If we do not understand their fundamental mode of existence, we are liable to be deceived, just as in the case of being involved with a person whose basic personality we do not know. He goes on to say, it's, it's, it's rather dense, it doesn't, I don't think it works so well to read it out loud, but the... the um, But the thing that I uh, wanted to read out loud from further on is um, he says there is no higher truth to be seen. The mind that sees that reality i.e. into emptiness experiences truth as it is. Thus it is called ultimate truth the essential mode of existence. I think that this is quite helpful. Everything in the world does exist. It's able to help and or hurt us. No further criterion for its existence is necessary. So this experiencing mind, Dilgo Kiense in his commentary says, um, To formulate the existence of something that has no existence at all is called delusion. It is only your lack of awareness and your grasping that make thoughts seem to have some kind of reality. If thoughts had any inherent existence in the absolute nature of mind, they should at least have a form or be located somewhere. (laughs) But there is nothing. However, that nothingness is not just a blank emptiness like empty space there is an immediate awareness present. This is called clarity. If someone gives you an apple or a piece of chocolate cake, you are cheerful. If a bee stings you, you feel pain. This is the clarity aspect of mind. This clarity of mind is like the sun illuminating the landscape and allowing you to see mountain, path, and precipice, where to go and where not to go. Wherever we may find ourselves in relationship to these teachings, and I will just say for myself, I feel like they are right at the edge of my like comfort uh, or confidence, maybe, or... Uh, yeah, I think you get the point. <laughs> Um, wherever we find ourselves in relationship to them, they're pointing us toward how do we relate with the phenomenal world? The world does exist. This is where we are. Everything else is like being built on that experience and reality. Everything is affecting us. Outer and inner, it's not so clear. So now how we act, what we do, how we use our mind turns out to be extremely critical in our experience of life. And so all of these teachings that are basically like whatever shit comes at you, do your best to stay connected and genuine and tender in your heart. That unconditional love that's like talked about again and again and again. I, I don't know that I actually um, have experienced that. I've definitely experienced love and so I'm figuring like this is related to that. But like, wow, wow. Wow, wow. So, how we relate to everything matters, like caretaking practice. How we relate to the phenomenal world. Judy Leaf uh, offered this teaching that I've heard in other places: the, all things. The whole phenomenal world is the manifestation of the guru, which you can understand, I'm sure, in many ways, but um, one way that I've been understanding it is just like everything has the capacity to teach us just in our taking in and relating to it. There's um, uh, the line in Tore Zenji's Bodhisattva Vow where... um, he talks about, like, taking care that the food and drink and clothing that nourishes us and protects us throughout the day are the warm skin and flesh, the incarnate compassion of the Buddha. The warm skin and flesh of the great masters, the incarnate compassion. The Buddha's compassion made like tangible It's like that is a whole different way to move through the world. So tender. So tender. There's a translation of Tori Zengi's poem where he uses the word tender to talk about um, how we might treat, yeah, being kind, and this translation talks about being kind and merciful um, toward inanimate objects and even more so toward human beings. But I like that word, tender. Tender. In her book, The Way of Tenderness, Senju Sensei says, when I turned toward the hurt in the silence, I entered a kind of tenderness that was not sore, not wounded, but rather powerfully present. I sat up straight, The silence had tilled hard ground into soft soil. I sunk deep into the soft ground where the source of life was revealed, wordless, nameless, without form, completely indescribable. And then, I dare to say it, I was completely tender. So that's why loving kindness is so important. And how we have to start with ourselves. I feel like that's been said again and again and again this ongoing. Today is International Transgender Day of Remembrance. It was started in 1999 to commemorate the death, the murder, of a black transgender woman. And our sangha is going to have our very first observance of TDOR. And we're not doing it today. The folks who planned it, the Transgender Nonconforming Sangha Practice Group, um, planned it for Tuesday so that everyone who's participating in Sishin would have the option of being part of that vigil. And it's exactly that, you know, that can be a manifestation of our bodhisattva um, commitment to turn in to the fire, to face what's true, to not turn a blind eye. So TDOR commemorates all of the people, transgender people, who have been murdered because of transphobia. So to see that and to be touched by that pain and suffering and to bring forth our practice of open eyed awareness vulnerability, tenderheartedness. And let those things be like water, watering the seed and the soil of our wisdom. And in our sangha, which is mostly white, mostly cis, mostly hetero, it's so important for all of us to work on creating a culture where everyone Folks who might identify as BIPOC or transgender, non binary, as LGBTQ, can be here and relax. So we can all do that deep work of letting the mind be at ease. And we have to know and feel supported in our relative identity in order to do that work. It's just how it is. So all of this that we're doing with Beyond Fear of Differences, our our sort of newer affinity groups, other things that I hope are nascent in the Sangha and will come into full bloom, we should appreciate that is part of our bodhisattva vow. I was speaking recently with someone, I guess it's worth mentioning a white, cis, hetero male. who is saying, like, I don't really get why this Beyond Fear of Differences work is getting so, like, entwined with our training. And I said, you know, what is it that you think we're talking about? Gandhi said, those who believe religion and politics aren't connected don't understand either one. So this bodhisattva vow, wow. Wow. A vow is not a goal. It's not an ambition. It lives somewhere else in our body, heart, mind, aspiration. It's not something to accomplish. It's like air. It's life-giving. Ken McLeod in his book, Reflections on Silva River, which is a commentary and alternative translation on the 37 practices of the Bodhisattva, and worth the look, I think, has this to say Look at the mess of the world, the endless cycles of pain and joy, gain and loss, war and peace. You see how every person, not just you, Struggles in his or her or their life, struggles and struggles and struggles. You are not alone. At this point, a quite profound shift in your motivation takes place. Your practice is not just about you. You find yourself wanting, wishing, or yearning to help others free themselves from their struggles, too. Is this intention to free every being in the universe mere grandiosity, romantic idealism, a utopian vision of a perfect world? It is none of these. Your intention is just how it is for you, not that you can and will actually free all beings from their struggles, but that you want to, you intend to, and even if the actual form of your life does not change, It is what you do each and every interaction you have with others. Take a moment right now and consider the idea of doing whatever you need to do to free all beings everywhere from their confusion, from their emotional reactions, projections, their struggles with life. Time is of no consequence. A thousand years, a billion years, ten quadrillion years, it doesn't matter. Numbers do not intimidate you. A thousand worlds, a trillion worlds, each with billions and billions of beings, it doesn't matter. You will do whatever it takes, for as long as it takes. Take a few moments and feel what it is like to embrace that possibility. Thanks for listening. Did you know that Zen Mountain Monastery is live-streaming all Dharma Talks and daily Zazen during the coronavirus quarantine? Visit our website to learn about all the online programs being offered at this time. Just go to ZMM.org and click on the link at the very top of the page, or scroll down and click on Retreats.